Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. All right, take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible, a physical Bible, maybe you have one on your phone, or maybe you can just watch along on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Let's stand as we read God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1. Moses the prophet says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now let's read verses four and five together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you lie by the way, and when you, or when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on, the, on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You may be seated. We have an awesome church. It is a privilege to be your pastor. But I want to ask you a question. Why do you call this church your home? Why do you come here? Why do you attend this church? What connects you to First Naples? Well, Will Mancini in his book, Future Church, talks about that question. And after years of research, he found that what emotionally connects people to a church is typically one of four attachments or all four attachments. The first attachment he talks about is place. Some of you come to this church because it's close to your house. Some of you come to this church because your family grew up in, in this church family and then you just love this location, you love the property, you love the buildings. Some of you, there's some nostalgia here. Your family puts your, their blood, their sweat, and their tears here in this church and you are just all in because you just love this place. Another reason why some people are connected to the church is a personality. Uh, they love the pastor. They love the pastoral staff or they love the style of teaching. So they're really connected to the personality of the pastor. Another reason why people are emotionally connected to the church are programs. You love the ministries of the church. You love the activities that the church offers. And he says the fourth reason why people are connected to a church is the people. And these may be friends or family members or there's some familiarity. It kind of feels like cheers where everybody knows your name. And there's some connections that you have. And so these things are not bad. People, place, 
programs, trust us, these aren't bad. And they're the reason why probably most of you, if not all of you, came to this church to begin with. They're the front door to the church. And a lot of churches around America have grown exponentially because they're really good at these four things. But here's a hard and fast reality. All those things, place, personality, programs, and the people, all of those things change over time. Buildings get renovated. Locations of churches change. Buildings get torn down. Pastors leave. Pastors retire. Uh, Programs change. Programs end. People leave. People move. People die. And so the thing that I want to have you understand is what if, what if your calling to this church is more than just being here for the place or the personality or the program or the people, but what if it is to be a part of the disciple-making vision of the church? Well, if that's your case, I want you to hear the vision that the pastoral staff and I have been praying for for these past six months that we want to share with you this this month, and that is is that First Naples glorifies God by being a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church that raises up the next generation of disciple makers, church planners, missionaries, and world changers that reaches Naples to the nations. It is that vision that we pray will compel you to call this church family your home. It is that vision that that shapes our values and guides our strategies. You know, we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. I am the eighth pastor of this church. I stand on the shoulders of seven men who poured their lives out to lead this church. You no doubt know the countless numbers who have been a part of this church and its vision to reach Southwest Florida and the nations for Christ. But yet as we look at this new day for first, as we look ahead to the future, we can no longer just be one mega regional church in one location, but we must be a mega multiplying church in multiple locations that makes disciples that plants churches from Naples to the nations. That's what we must be. Now you may be asking, I'm sure you are, why are we starting in Deuteronomy? Isn't a sermon like this, shouldn't this come from the book of Acts? Shouldn't this come from Matthew 28 where Jesus gave that great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups? Well, it could, but the reason why we're in Deuteronomy is because the foundation for the great commission, go and make disciples, is found in the great commandment, loving God supremely. And so as we go through Deuteronomy here today, Deuteronomy, the the word is Deuteronomos from the Greek, second law. It is the second time that Moses the prophet gave the law to the people of God. The reason why he had to give it a second time is because the majority of those who heard it the first time died wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It's the world's longest NASCAR race. They just went in circles. And what you find in the book of Deuteronomy is that the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons from Moses, the man of God, as he was preparing the people of God to the place that God had promised them. And so you have over probably 2 million people 
standing on the precipice of their destiny for their lives, awaiting instruction from God. And so in, Ge- in, in Deuteronomy 6, in chapter 6, God gives his people both direction and motivation for fulfilling the vision for their lives that will sustain them the rest of their lives. As they're on that very verge of entering into the place that God had prepared for them, God gives them not only direction, but motivation. And just as God gave direction and motivation to God's people then, so today God is giving direction and motivation to us today. And so the two questions that we want to talk about this morning are this, where are we going and how are we going to get there? Well, let's look at where we're going. Direction. Verse one, Moses says, this is the commandment that the Lord your God commanded me to teach. Moses was the leader. He was the mediator of the the covenant. He was the leader of the nation of Israel, leading them through the wilderness. He's the one that God has chosen to be the spokesperson to prepare his people for entering into the place that God had called them to go. So in this moment in Deuteronomy 6, he is casting the vision that God had for his people. Proverbs chapter 29, 18 says that where there is no vision, the people perish. One translator translated that verse this way, where there is no ongoing progressive leadership vision, the people wander aimlessly until they die. Well, God does not have his people without a leader. God has given all throughout the generations, God's people has certain leaders that he has risen up to lead the people of God. But I want you to understand that a lot of pastors that I know, uh, and maybe you know, have used this word vision, and they've abused it as if they went themselves to Mount Sinai and got a direct word from God. Well, I want you to understand, I am no prophet, nor am I a son of a prophet. And what you see in this verse in Deuteronomy 6 is that God gave Moses in Deuteronomy a direct word that came directly from God's mouth to Moses' heart to the people's ears. Well, this vision that you have, that you've been presented to you today is not just something that God gave me an inspiration and inspired me to do so. All of this is found in the word of God. And so as we go through this, this vision statement this month, you're going to see that each one of these things that God has called us to as a church all come from the word of God. See, just as God had been preparing Moses and the people of God for where he, what he had prepared for them. So God has prepared our church for what he's prepared for us. See, as Moses wandered 40 years in the wilderness, God was preparing them to be a mighty nation that will fulfill the purposes and plans of God in the promised land. It took them 40 years of wondering because they weren't ready to go. But at the right time, God said, go. Now, what are the plans that God had for his people? Well, I'm glad you asked. In verse number three, he, we hear those. He says, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly. God's vision for his people was multiplication. This is what God actually said in his first commandment to Adam and Eve, this creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where he said to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, be fruitful and multiply. That is, have children, raise up God image bearers, raise up those who reflect the glory of God and would enjoy God forever. Be fruitful and multiply. Even though sin came and destroyed, tried to destroy what God had established, God moved through a man named Abraham and God's promise to Abraham was that he would multiply Abraham, that his offspring would be like the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky. It was God's calling to the nation of Israel to be fruitful and multiply and to spread his glory that would shine as a light to the nations. 
See, God's plan for Israel, just as God's plan is for you and I, is to take them from and bring them to. God has brought us out of to bring us into. God took the people of Israel out of the land of bondage to bring them to a better place. As a matter of fact, that idea of bringing out and being brought to is found all throughout the Old Testament. It's as if God says, I have made you a place where I'm going to bring you there to do what I've called you to do. See, God's vision for God's people is often and always, I think, far greater than the vision that we have for ourselves. God's vision for Israel was greater than they could imagine, and God's vision for our church is greater than we can imagine. Moses says in verse number three that he's going to, God has called them to multiply, and God's taking them to a place, notice this, flowing with milk and honey. You've probably heard that before. As we read this, we understand that Israel itself wasn't necessarily what we think it would be. Just There's just milk and honey everywhere. <laughs> that would, you know, like the streams are milk and honey just oozes out of the trees. No, this is hyperbolic language that speaks that the land that they were going to was a land of blessing and fertility. A land where God's people could multiply and fulfill the purpose and the vision that God had for them. But I want you to understand that this saying of Moses in chapter six was not the first time that God through Moses had told Israel that they were going to a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses had been telling them that all along the way, but yet in the wilderness, all they could see is what they didn't have. All they could think is that they would never live in the place that God had for them. And I don't know if you know this, but Moses in, the, in, the, in the, the, those first five books told the people of Israel 23 times that they were going to a land of milk and honey. Why would he tell them 23 times? Because God's people tend to forget where God is taking them. See, the vision that God had for the, his people had already been shared with God's people, but yet God's people didn't universally accept it. You know, for some people in Moses' day, the vision was too bold. The vision was too dangerous. Remember, what could have been a couple months journey lasted 40 years. Israel learned that 10 negative people can set you back 40 years. Because the vision both compels people and the vision repels people. How does it repel people? Because the vision of God often requires change. Peter Sange said that people don't resist change. People resist being changed. See, change causes discomfort. Change uh, causes us to fear when we're stretched out of our comfort zones. No, I don't know very many people that like change. Change often involves loss, the loss of that which is familiar and the loss of that which is comfortable. But yet you have to understand that the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of change. For Israel to stay in the wilderness, even though it was familiar, was far greater than the pain of going to a place they'd never been before. And I want you to understand that the vision and the direction that I believe that God is calling our church to follow is both bold and dangerous. The vision is going to require you and I to stretch ourselves to go where we've never gone before and do what we've never done before. This is visioneering. Andy Stanley said that visioneering is a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. I want you to understand that these three things I'm sharing with you about the vision are things that I'm absolutely convicted should be as a part of our church. These three things are being a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church. Let's just unpack that, being multi-generational. Our vision is to reach the next generation, but not without the current generations. We need all of us together, all hands on deck, working together to reach the next generation for Christ. 
you hear God's heart for multi-generational ministry in verse number two, where he says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons. You have three generations there. We should want to reach our kids, our kids' kids, and our kids' kids' kids. See, the next generation, Generation Z, or Generation Alpha, is an unreached people group. And they have so many questions, and they're looking for answers, and yet they're finding them in the wrong place. Sadly, most kids are finding their answers on YouTube or Google than anywhere else. Generation Z, those born 1997 to 2018, are the, the first generation in American history that is a post-Christian generation. There is no Judeo-Christian footprint in their mind. Their parents are not necessarily followers of Jesus. And the second thing about that generation is it's the first generation in American history where they have had social media and the internet all of their lives. And so they're looking to, like I said earlier, to YouTube and to Google and to TikTok and to Snapchat and to Instagram to find answers and sadly, what the world is telling them is lies. And that's why Generation Z is one of the most sexually fluid generations in American history. 15.9% of those in Generation Z identify as LGBTQ+. Many of them are not only joining the nuns, those with no religious affiliation, but many of them have joined the duns, those who are done with any kind of religion. It's been said that freedom is always just one generation away from extinction. Well, I would say that Christianity is always just one generation from extinction. It is the job of all of us to ensure that the next generation knows and loves Jesus. Tim and Shauna Gaines in their book, Growing Up, write that if you are willing to entrust your keys to young people, they will entrust you with their hearts, their energy, their creativity, and even their friends. If you give them your access, you'll have an opportunity to touch a whole generation. Listen, you and I have a responsibility to ensure that we do everything we can that the next generation knows. This is why we have our academy. This is why we share God's word. This is why we invest in over 900 students and their families so that the next generation knows. This is why we have preschool ministry and kids ministry and student ministry is because we wanna ensure that the next generation knows. It takes all of us, not just the elite, to ensure the next generation knows. But again, being multi-generational may mean laying down of preferences. One of the ladies in my last church, Jan Shockey, sh shared something with me a few years ago. She's, the, the church had been changing and become a little bit more, the, the music had changed. And that's the thing you have to understand. What, what is contemporary to you will one day be traditional to somebody else. I mean, some of you grew up like in the 90s. You remember 90s Christian music? You remember the early 2000s? about the big house where you can play football with a big, big yard. Remember that song? It's my father's house. I mean, I want to sing it right now in your mind. He came from heaven to earth to show us. I mean, like, listen, great songs. They're traditional now, okay? <laughs> and so she came up to me and she says, Pastor, I just, you know, she's a sweet lady. Been in the church for years and years. She says, Pastor, I just want you to know, I don't really like the new music. And I don't necessarily like the volume levels. You know, I shared this in other services and I thought some were going to testify when I said that. <laughs> she said, but pastors, and I don't, she said, the other thing she said, I don't understand why they turn, turn, turn the lights down. 
She says, oh, but Pastor, when I see those kids, when I see those teenagers worshiping Jesus like they're worshiping Jesus, and I read those lyrics, and they're biblical lyrics, she says, Pastor, I don't necessarily like the style, and I think it's a little loud, but it's okay with me. It's okay with me. That's our posture. That's multi-generational. Now, I'm not just saying that if you're someone that, that is maybe a senior saint, uh, a veteran Christian, that it means that you have to lay down every one of your preferences and, and there shouldn't be no mute. I'm, I'm talking about it's multi-generational. It means all generations come together. And let me just tell you something. If you come to church and, and that church meets every one of your preferences, then we've done something wrong. We've done something wrong. Multi-generational, secondly, multi-ethnic. See, our vision is to reflect the diversity of our community. You realize that Collier County is not just one monolithic ethnicity. There are people literally from around the world with so many different cultures and, ling and language backgrounds. And I want the, our church, we should want to see our church reflect the diversity of our community and we should proclaim the diversity of the kingdom of God. Churches who, know, who reach their city are churches that know their city. And churches that reach and know their city look like their city. See, the early church was a very ethnically diverse church whose leadership was very ethnically diverse. And one day in heaven, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will be standing before the throne of God in that Revelation 7, 9, and 10 vision. And so the unity of our community should always reflect the diversity of eternity. There's not a white person section in heaven, a black person section in heaven, a brown person section in heaven. It's all God's people section in heaven. <laughs> D.A. Horton writes that ethnic diversity is God's idea. God has the patent on it. And he has licensed his church to be his marketing strategy for it. Recognizing his intention not to create us all the same God shows no partiality towards one ethnicity over another. Arguably in the eternal state, it's God's design that our ethnicities, our skin pigmentations, will remain. Since the church is the foretaste of heaven, it is by no accident that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, commanded his followers to make disciples of every ethnicity. Having a desire to reach all people that don't necessarily look like you, talk like you, think like you, or dress like you is not being woke. It is being obedient to the commands of Jesus Christ. And in a divided world where we are divided politically, economically, and on racial lines, we need a united church. We are united under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We understand that there is one race, the human race, one problem, sin, and only one solution, Jesus Christ. And so we are multi-generational is the vision, a multi-ethnic, multiplying church. See, multiplication beats addition every time. I would much rather have my 401k have in, compound interest that multiplies than just merely me adding a few dollars here or there. See, we just don't want to sit sour and soak until we croak. We want to be about making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. 
A disciple, you may be asking, what's a disciple, preacher? Well, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus in faith and lifestyle and helps others do the same. But to be a church of disciples that make disciples, we have to be the church in the community. We can't just be one big Christian bubble. We can't just say, everybody come to this place, come to this church, seven days a week, we're gonna have something here. Come here, come here, come here. Because here's what I want you to understand. People aren't just gonna show up here. No more than a deer is just gonna show up to your little camp and say, shoot me. They will not come. They must be found. They will not seek. They must be sought. And we've got to be the church in the community. And we've got to create margin in our programming here so that you can be in the community. J.D. Greer in his book, Gaining by Losing, said of the 40 miracles recorded in the book of Acts, 39 happen outside the church walls. That's 97.5% for those of you who are wondering. He says, you can safely conclude that the main place God wants to manifest his power is outside the church. Think of how foreign this is to most church members thinking. Ask most church-going Christians to describe a time when they saw and felt the power of God, and they'll point to a moment in a sermon or a musical performance. But most of what God wants to do in our society happens outside the church, facilitated by the hands of ordinary people. Do you understand that God wants to take ordinary people and do extraordinary things with them? And do you understand that my job as your pastor is not to do the work of the ministry? The pastoral staff's job is not to do the work of the ministry. We're not just paid to be good and the rest of you can be good for nothing. No, we are called to equip you. I am only successful when I equip you to do the work of the ministry. When I became a Christian, I was called into the ministry. And therefore, my ministry is to help call you out to serve him and to equip you to do it. And therefore, because of that, We want to raise up within our church the next church planners. We want to raise up within our church the next missionaries. We want to send our best and our brightest and even our best givers. We want to send them out and be a part of the mission of God that he has them either in Naples or to the nations because every believer is called into the ministry. Every one of you. It's not if you've been called, it's where have you been called. And our vision is from Naples to the nations because we never want the sun to set on the ministries, membership, or mission of our church around the world. Because this is not a country club. This is not a cruise ship. We are not the good ship lollipop. We're not even a battleship. We are an aircraft carrier that launches you out into a world that's broken and in need. See, to be multi-generational, And to be multi-ethnic, we have to say it's not about me. Sadly, I think the mantra of most is it's all about me, and if I don't get what I want, then I'm out. But to be multi-generational, multi-ethnic, we've got to say it's not about me. And to be a multiplication church, we have to understand it's got to be more than just me, which means I'm going to have to give up my territory. I may not be able to do what I've always done because it's best that someone else do it. It's best that someone else learns how to do it. Well, the question I'm going to ask you is, well, how in the Sam Hill are we going to think that way? I mean, how in the world can you live actually like that where you want to be multi-generational, multi-ethnic, and multiplying? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Where are we going? That's the direction. Multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplication. That's where we're going. Anybody wants to know, where's, where's First Baptist Church Naples going? They're going there. But how are we going to do it? That's the motivation. Verses 1 and 2. 
Moses talks about the commandment, the whole commandment. He actually starts this talk about this whole commandment starting in chapter four, verse 44. He says, this is the commandment that you may do in the land. So this is the strategy. There's a commandment, the whole commandment. There's a strategy, the energy, and the motivation for fulfilling this multi-generational multiplication vision of God. What's, what is this? Well, he continues. He talks about that you may fear the Lord your God. The fear of God is the standard by which the people of God are evaluated. But the fear of God is not to be afraid of God. Being afraid of God or the idea of God is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about the fear of God because the fear of God drives you away from God. And so there is both a religious, a wrong religious fear of God and a secular, irreligious wrong fear of God. And a wrong kind of fear of God comes from a wrong understanding of who God is. See, for the religious, those who have a wrong fear of God, they, they only do religious things. They only perform certain kinds of duties so that they can get God to like them. They do things so that God will give them maybe what they think. If I start going to church, maybe I'm going to have more money in my bank account. If I start being nice to others, then maybe God's going to do this for me. And what they have basically done is they've said, listen, it's reciprocity. And I don't want to tick this God off. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to please him so that I can get what I want. Or they do whatever they can to please him so they don't go to hell. And a lot of people, maybe some of you, you've been turned off from religion because of this whole concept that if I don't do the right things, I'm going to go to hell. And therefore, the irreligious, they repel the idea of God because they want to be free from someone telling them what they're supposed to do. But both the religious sinful fear and the irreligious sinful fear are not going to drive you towards God. They're going to actually drive you away from God. But real fear of God drives you to God. And that's what we find here. What is that? What is the real fear of God? It's the Shema. It's the saying. It's the, it's the whole commandment. What's the, whole, what's the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus says it's the summation of the law and the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love God. Loving God is God's, is God, is God's blessing to us. It's, it's our highest calling and our greatest privilege. Because when you love God, you trust God, and you desire to obey God. Jen Wilkins, in her book, None Like Him, says that the fear of God is a radical God-centeredness that shapes everything else in life. See, the future of the vision requires that we teach the next generation to love God and make disciples. That's what he talks about in verses six through nine when he talks about you need to teach your children. See, we must teach the next generation to love God passionately, to love God enthusiastically, and to love God totally. You know, listen, it's been said that parenting is not for wimps. Parenting's hard, right? It might be for dummies, but it's definitely not for wimps. And we can't make our children fall in love with Jesus. We can't. But we can set them up on as many dates as possible with Jesus. And that's why Moses talks about when you lay down, when you walk, wherever you are, all over your house, point your children to the love of God. Talk about God's love. Talk about God's love in the morning. Talk about God's love in the evening. Talk about love God, God's love at noon. Everywhere you go with your kids, talk about it. Because here's why. Your kids know what you love the most. And what you love the most, you talk about the most. You know, I said I wasn't going to say anything about Kentucky beating Florida yesterday. And so I won't. But, but I want you to understand that my kids know, and you all know. Why? Because I talk about it all the time. Like, there's two or three things like you could tell me right now. He, likes Chick he loves Chick-fil-A. He loves Kentucky. Like, if I could watch a Kentucky game eating Chick-fil-A, that's heaven, right? But here's what you have to understand. Your kids tend to love 
what you love. I didn't say they always do. And you say, well, you know, pastor, my, my kids, we, we love God, but my kids don't necessarily love. Listen, you can't make them, but you can set them up. You can show them an example. But what I'm getting at is it's the love of God that compels us, that motivates us, that inspires us, that empowers us to fulfill the God, God, God-sized vision he's given us. And so we don't live on mission because we're afraid that if we don't live on mission for God, he'll destroy us. And we don't live on mission because of some guilt trip that a preacher gives us or somebody else tells us that we should be doing. We should want to serve God and obey God and be on mission for God because we love God because God has given us everything we need to do what he's called us to do. And therefore, the greatest fear in our life should be not to love God the way he should be loved. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The motivation to fulfill the vision cannot be about building our brand. It cannot be about expanding our kingdom or giving a pastor a platform or making a name for ourselves. That can't be what this motivates us. See, our identity is not in what we accomplish for God. Our identity is ultimately rooted in what God has accomplished for us. It's rooted in the love of God and any other motivation to fulfill the vision other than the love of God will never be able to sustain us. All other foundations are sinking sand. And that is why the foundation of the Great Commission is always and will always be the Great Commandment. To the degree that you love God is the degree that you'll make disciples. And therefore, the vision of our church never gets any higher than our love for God and our love for others based on God's love for us. As we love God and others, we will make a multi-generational, multi-ethnic disciple that will make disciples, that will make disciples, that will change the world from Naples to the nations. And so what I'm saying is this, is that what God is calling us to is hard. It's bold. It's dangerous. It will require risk. There may be some failures. It will require hard work, inconvenience, a laying down of our preferences, a dying to ourselves, a leveraging of our resources in a time of great sacrifice. But yet, whatever sacrifice we make for God pales in comparison to the sacrifice he's made for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, if you're reading in our Bible reading plan, you read this this morning, where Paul writes this, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus obeyed the Father by sacrificing himself so that we could be God's people forever. What motivated him to do that? Love. The Father's love motivated Jesus to obey despite the cost. The Father's love is what should motivate us to obey God despite the cost. See, it's not my love for God, but it's God's love for me that sustains us in this mission. And as we move forward, as we think ahead, we cannot be people who are living and only come into this church for shallow reasons. The bedrock of our faith and our mission is the love of God. And that's the most important part. That's what will give you the energy and the ability 
to move and live as God's called you to move and live. This is March. It's my favorite month of the year. Two reasons. Number one, it's my wife's birthday. Okay? Number two, it's March Madness. One of the greatest coaches in history was a guy by the name of John Wooden. John Wooden led the University of California, Los Angeles, known as UCLA, to 10 national championships in 12 years. He is known as the wizard from Westwood. He's also a devout, was a devout Christian, lived to be, I think, 199, 100 years old. Very well-known well man in American history. The first thing that John Wooden would do as he would start a championship season, just the first practice that he would have, the first practice of the year, as he's brought in all these athletes from all around the country, these elite athletes, they, they want to sit under the tutelage of John Wooden. He would bring them in, and the first practice, he would all have them sit in chairs. He would sit in a chair, and for 30 minutes, he would teach his players how to put their socks on and their shoes on. And that was the whole practice. I mean, you imagine these, these guys, people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and all these others who, who were just well-known Bill Russell, these legends would come and the first practice would be 30 minutes of watching John Wooden teach you how to put your socks and shoes on. And here's what he would say. He'd say, each day when you pull each sock, make absolutely sure there are no wrinkles or gaps. Your heel should sit fully in the heel of the sock. Run your hands from the toes to the heels to smooth out any bumpy places. Then he would demonstrate that. And then he would demonstrate how to properly lace the shoes, tie them snugly with a double knot. Now you say, why would he do that? Here's what he would say. He says, if there are any wrinkles in the sock or any, any issues with the shoes not being properly tied, it could cause your feet, which are the most important part, to develop blisters. He says with blisters, if you've got blisters on your feet, some of you may miss practice. And if you miss practice, you're gonna miss preparation. And you're gonna miss preparation with your team. And so that when you go and play a game, you will not be able to play your best on game day. And if you don't play your best on game day, we may not win. And you may not win because you didn't pay proper attention to your foundation. Well, church, we must make sure that the foundation of our lives is the love of God. And we must remind ourselves of God's love for us that will empower us and inspire us to love God. And in loving God, we will glorify God by making disciples that make disciples that make disciples. We have an opportunity. We are setting and the place that God has called us for such a time that he has called us and the sacrifice of Jesus and the lostness of this world demand that we leverage our lives for the mission and vision of God. But yet we will only be able to do it if we are assured that God loves us.
And we will only be sure, assured of God's love for us by looking to the cross to see what he's done for us. When we see what he has done and when we glory in what he has done, then we will do what he asks. C.T. Studd said that if Christ be God and died for me, there's no sacrifice too great for me to make for him. So church, let's go. Let's reach Naples to the nations. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work that only your Holy Spirit can do. That God, you would convince us of the love of God. That we would so know you love us that we would storm the gates of hell for you, knowing that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Father, I ask that you would help us to have the boldness to go where you've called us to go, to do what you've called us to do, so that the nations may, be, may hear and be glad. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.